If you have a Bible with you today, find the book of James. James, we're going to be in chapter number four. James chapter four. Today, uh, we are continuing our message series that we've simply are using the word glory. Uh, one word, glory. And allow me to begin with just like a two-minute review of last week to get us all on the same page. Last Sunday, I talked about the tension that I feel uh, in my life as a follower of Jesus, the tension that I feel. It's not really a tension over what I believe, uh, though I fully admit that I'm growing and, I, and my thinking has changed over the years in certain places. I, I deeply believe in the Bible. I believe that it is the very word of God. I believe that it is filled with truth and that truth sets people free in so many different ways. It has the power to change lives. But I also believe that the Bible, within the pages of the scripture, certain things are meant to be wrestled with. The Bible talks about generosity. It never tells us what that looks like. You wrestle with things like that. The Bible is filled with black and white things, clearly laid out, non-negotiable things for me, but it's also filled with all sorts of tension and things that need to be worked out and wrestled with. The, the tension that I feel is also, okay, so it's not really in what I believe. The tension that I feel is not uh, a tension of, do I still want to be a pastor or do I still feel like God has me at that church? Don't, don't mishear some of that type of stuff. In fact, I feel so strongly that God has me here, like in my family right here, right now, River of Life Church, Central Minnesota, don't misunderstand. Sometimes pastors begin to get a little bit raw from the stage and they talk about things and immediately people begin to think like, oh, my pastor is gonna leave and go someplace else. That's not the case, deal? Okay, Uh, the tension that I feel is simply in this question, what does it look like for us to live as followers of Jesus in a culture filled with wealth and freedom? That's the question. Wealth and freedom are very different than what we read about in the, in the pages of the Bible. The lives of the early Christians were filled with poverty and persecution and a lack of religious freedom. And around the world right now, there are millions of followers of Jesus in our world, 2023, who are living in places where it is illegal for them to be a follower of Jesus, illegal for them to own a Bible. And yet I sit here, 2023 Central Minnesota, gathering together without fear, gathering together in safety, able to own a Bible and sing songs. We're free to talk about our faith if we would like to do that. Okay, and so for the past For the past number of years, this has been welling up inside of me, just this feeling of something's not right here. Uh, And for the past six months or so, I have just been reading book after book after book that tells the story of people who have sacrificed and are sacrificing greatly for the sake of Jesus. Some are missionaries who have left America and gone other places. Others are people who are living as followers of Jesus in very dangerous places. I, I shared last week from two books Uh, And I want to use the same two books today uh, just as an illustration. This book right here, this first one is called The Heavenly Man, okay? The weirdest title in the world. They tell why in the middle, but I'm not going to talk about that. This book right here tells the story of a Chinese Christian leader who has gone through some of the most intense, horrendous persecution that you could ever even uh, imagine. I talked last week about how in the middle of this book, there's a picture of four, of four Chinese leaders 
religious leaders, Christian leaders, and the caption lists their name, and then it just says this. It says, together these four men have spent over 47 years of their life in prison for their faith in Jesus. It is a difficult book to read filled with horrible things that were done okay, to, to this man and people like him, but here's what he writes about the persecution of Christians. Are you ready for this? He writes this. He says, instead of weakening us, the persecution just made us stronger. The more pressure there was, the more fire and love there was to spread the gospel. He paints a a horrible picture of persecution, imprisonments, even death for the cause of Jesus Christ. But it's really at the end of the book is what really caught my attention. And I want to read something to you because eventually this man here, it would no longer be possible for him, to, for him to even live in China. His name was everywhere. His passport was flagged. His voice had been recorded. Everywhere that he went, they were, the authorities were looking for him and searching for him. He had escaped prison supernaturally. Okay, big story, all this stuff. But eventually he escapes from China. It's a miraculous story. Ends up um, in what he would call the West which was Germany and other parts of Europe, and eventually he would travel to America for a season. At the end of this book, he, he reflects on Christianity in the West. I want to read this to you because this would be his view of us after what he has gone through. He, he wrote this, he says, Before I traveled to the West, I had absolutely no idea that so many churches were spiritually asleep. I presumed the Western church was strong and vibrant because it had brought the gospel to my country with such incredible faith and tenacity. Many missionaries had shown a powerful example to us by laying down their lives for the, fake of, or for the sake of Jesus. On some occasions, I've struggled while speaking in Western churches. There seems to be something missing that leaves me feeling terrible inside. Many meetings are cold and lack the fire and the presence of God that we have in China. In the West, many Christians have an abundance of material possessions, yet they live in a backslidden state. They have silver and gold, but they don't rise up and walk in Jesus' name. In, in China, we have no possessions to hold us down, so there's nothing preventing us from moving out for the Lord. The Chinese church is like Peter at the beautiful gate. When, I, when he saw the crippled beggar, he said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have to give, I give to you in the name of Jesus, walk. In a similar way, I pray that God might use the, the Chinese church to help the Western church rise up and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. It is almost impossible for the church in China to go to sleep in its present situation. There's always something to keep us on the run, and it's very difficult to sleep while you're running. If persecution stops, I fear we'll become complacent and fall asleep. If persecution stops, I fear we will, beco- we will become complacent and fall asleep. The second book that I talked about last week, and I got to move quickly through this, is called Sacred Ambitions. It's a very recent book written by... Um, a missionary right in the middle of one of the most difficult countries in the Middle East, illegal to be there, dangerous, horrendous. At one point, he wrestles with this question openly in this book of what, what would happen if the country that I live in opened up like the American, 
like America. And when he says opened up, he, what he means is, what if it now becomes free for religion? And we can have Bibles, and we can have a church that's not underground and hiding. What if that would, ha- what were, what if that would happen, and missionaries could go there and all that? He's wrestling with this. Uh, what if this difficult country implements religious freedom like we have in America? And listen to what he writes. And he's kind of scholarly, uh, so he kind of writes like that. Uh, but here's what he writes. He writes, there is even a subtler danger that public allowance will undermine desperation for Jesus and evangelistic zeal. The goal must ever be on the gospel going forward to all the nations, every unreached people, not the comfort and the ease of the found. Jesus left the 99 and sought out the one uncomfortably lost. Recognition and ease can be a curse, not a blessing. Jesus, help and lead us. There is a danger that religious freedom will undermine the desperation for Jesus, okay? Recognition can be a curse, not a blessing. In other words, these people who are living in difficult places around the world as followers of Jesus are writing, if you remove persecution from the equation and add religious freedom, the people will lose their desperation for God. It's a natural byproduct of that. In another place, he just flat out writes, the gospel advances in times of persecution and retreats in times of ease. And if you're hearing this and you're thinking it isn't fair for him to make make such a blanket statement, black and white statement, the way that he does, understand if it was not for persecution in the first century of the Jesus followers, the message of Jesus may as well just stayed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But, but the immense persecution, even the murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, leads to the Christians being scattered. And the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to spread like crazy. Why? Because of the persecution of Christians. So here's where this leaves us today. Okay? If persecution breeds desperation for Jesus and ease brings complacency, then what does that say about us? And it's a very real question that the American church should be wrestling with. This issue is not like that our freedom and our safety and our wealth causes that stuff directly. I'm in no way saying those things are bad or negative, but understand the temptation and the drive and everything that comes with that stuff. The issue is the lack of our desperation for God. And the fact that we walk around saying, look at us, God has blessed us, isn't America great? And it is, but spiritually we are at a very, very tipsy-topsy place. And if that offends you, then you're misunderstanding me, by the way. Because in no way am I throwing shade on America or our freedom or any of that. I'm proud to be in America. I am blessed beyond measure. I understand the lives that have been lost and all of those types of things. This is nothing in that lane, absolutely, okay? Please don't hear this as me taking a knee during the national anthem. I'm not doing that. That's not what I think. But there's no question in my mind that wealth and freedom bring apathy and complacency spiritually. If we are not careful. And we must wrestle with hard questions if we want to be spirit-filled, godly believers who are committed to the heart and the things of God. We are at great risk in our setting to become spiritually complacent and lose our desperation for Jesus. 
That's enough of an introduction. That was the longest thing ever. Stand with me all over this place. James chapter 4. Okay, and I'm going to intro this Bible by saying, this Bible passage by saying this. Much of the Bible is beautiful and talks about the love and the grace of God. And there are other parts of the Bible that seem to yell. Today we're looking at a yelling passage of the scripture. So just know that right away. Okay, if, if they didn't do that back then, a lot of this passage would have been in all caps. Just know that. Here we go, James chapter 4, starting in verse number 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you're asking with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friends of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit as he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Turn to your neighbor and say, I feel kind of weird inside right now. <laughs> okay, let's pray. God, we are people who are in need. We need you to enlighten us. We need you, Holy Spirit, to show us things and to teach us things and to bring back the desperation for you and for your glory. Use me. Don't let this be me on a stage doing my thing, but God, let this sincerely be significant from you in every piece and every part. We give this to you, God, in your name we pray. Amen. Give someone a high five and have a seat. All right, we got to roll. It's already 10 o'clock. Okay, a moment ago, it's 10 o'clock and he just finished his introduction. You should be worried. All right, uh, a moment ago we read from the book of the Bible known as James. It gets its name because James wrote it. Okay, brilliant, I know. Who was James? James was the half-brother of Jesus. James was Mary and Joseph's kid. And if you're here today and you're saying, wait, wait a second, Mary had more kids? Yeah, she did. It's, it's in the Bible in different places in different ways. And James is, James is that. Uh, we don't know what that looked like. We don't have stories of James as a kid. We just know that he was Mary and Joseph's kid, half-brother, I guess is what you'd call that, of Jesus. And he writes this book in the Bible. It's a beautiful book. It's also incredibly harsh. Like, um, James, you could call James like Slim Jim, okay? Which would be like, you ever have one of those Slim Jims? You eat it and it's like, whoa, okay? Yeah, Slim, it's a little tiny book and it just packs this punch. I don't know why I said that. That's not in my notes. But James, James is fired up 
and he's fired up because there are Christians who are letting their selfish desires for the things of this world creep in to their relationship with Jesus. And I read this stuff and like, I just can't help but think this is us. This is America. This is the battle that we face. This is our struggle. And let me just start by making this statement. Write this down if you're taking notes. As Christians, we constantly battle the pull of the world, is the phrase that I'm going to use here, taken right from what James is going to say. As Christians, we constantly battle the pull of the world. And picture this with me. This, let's picture this side over here as everything that is pure and selfless and beautiful and centered worship and its sacrifice and its extreme generosity. This is Jesus and everything that he is and it's, it's this incredible thing. And then we picture this other side over here and it is the world, and it is selfish living to the core. It is fighting to get to the top. It is sexual promiscuity and finding temporary pleasures in all sorts of toxic ways. It's self-centered, self-promoting, self-exalted, unfiltered life and living over here. And allow me to just be super harsh right out of the gate, like while people in our world right now are dying for this over here, giving their life, literally dying for this. The average American Christian is spending their life trying to figure out how close can I get to go over here and still go to heaven when I die. It's such a different mentality. And it's so different than what we see in the Bible. And we're playing with fire. As we view this stuff in this way, the Bible points to this incredible life that glorifies God in everything that we do, this incredible way of living that brings abundant joy and peace that passes all understanding and a life that is truly life. Those are the phrases from the scripture. A life that is dying daily. A life that is carrying its cross daily, laying down our own dreams and our own goals for that of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we will die if we have to because we are consumed by this incredible God and what he has done. And yet, as Americans, we spend our lives drifting in this direction. And hanging out over here, getting close, living lives that appear to be exactly the same as everyone else around us. We watch the same movies and we watch the same TV shows and we say the same words and we drink the same drinks and we go to the same places and we treat people the same as everyone else treats them and we spend our money just like everybody else. Understand the world all the time is pulling at us. It's pulling it pulls and pulls and it never stops pulling. And we begin to make excuses for, uh, for why certain scriptures don't apply to me. In my house, in my house we, ha- we have words that are banned. They're words that my kids can't say anymore. Okay? Uh, they are no longer able to be spoken in my house. And they're not the words that you think they are, by the way. Okay, uh, these are not cuss words and these are not super crude words. And anyway, I'll give you an example. One of the words that is banned in the Peterson house is the word turd. You heard me correctly. <laughs> it's the word turd, not allowed to be said by my kids. Uh, and and 
Uh, why is the word turd banned in my house? Very simply because my kids really like to call each other different versions of the word turd. And they were saying it all the time. They would say, you're such a turd, and you're a turd nugget, and your face looks like a turd. And they would say this over and over again. This is just real life right here. Are you with me? Okay. And finally we said, enough! You cannot say the word turd. If you say the word turd, you will be fined and you will be punished. And it was half laughing and half true and, and okay, when you understand what's going on. I don't know if that's good parenting or not, but that is not the point in this. Well, a while later, I walk up um, to hearing one of my kids. And one of my kids said to the other one, didn't know I was there, and, and they said, you're such a turd-dull. <laughs> and I said, Sneaky. And the other one looked back and said, Yeah, but you're a mustard. <laughs> and I said, Oh, I was like, Come on. And, um, and it actually went on. I don't have time for the rest of this. That's okay. My kids are geniuses. They are. And some of you are thinking to yourself, Those are the words, those are words of endearment compared to what my kids call each other. Okay. But here's the point like, as, as Christians, we do this, we find ways around things. And we are ever ex- attempting to move closer and closer to the sin line and trying to figure out where that is and we can get as close as we close to that without actually crossing it. And yet people around the world are giving their lives for this. James chapter 1, here we go. I feel uneasy on the inside about all of this, but let's look to the Bible. Verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Okay? Desires that battle within you. Understand, there are desires inside of you that are battling with you all the time, every day. And in this situation with James, these desires seem to be causing friction among believers. And by the way, James, the entire letter was written to Christians, not to people on the outside. So everything that he says here is to people who are sincerely wanting to follow God, but they are, they are not where they should be. They're fighting and quarreling with each other in the church because of these desires that are battling within them. Verse 2, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. And he's not saying that these people were actually murdering each other. We don't have time for this, but just understand, you're like, wow, this is a messed up church. Okay? You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You fight for your way. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We could spend weeks on this stuff, but listen, hear the words desires, wrong motives, wrong that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Verse number four, James, verse four, buckle up, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And we read passages of scripture like this, and we don't read it and ask ourselves, wow, am I a friend with the world? We read this stuff and we say, yeah, there's people like that. And we excuse our way around this stuff. Wow, these people that James is writing, they're bad news. At least that's not me. But don't miss this. Like James is saying, your desires are pulling you towards this way of living. 
They're pulling you towards self-centered, self-focused, this, this way and understand like moving further and further in that direction. It's like cheating on God. Do you see that? You adulterous people. Moving in this direction is cheating on God. And don't miss this. This is important. And it's the warning we see all through the scripture. And this is why we're talking about this today. The more we have and the more self-sufficient we become, the more the world pulls. The more the world pulls. The more you have, the less you need to rely on God. The, the, the less you need to trust God. The less you need to cry out to him and respond to him with passion out of your need. When you only have $3 to your name and you have no possessions, you don't hold on to the things of the world in the same way. This is true. The more we have and the more self-sufficient we become, the stronger this battle is between the world and God. And understand, this battle is not just like the world. There's something much deeper going on here. In a moment, James is actually going to tell us to resist the devil. But Paul, Paul helps us understand this battle in a different way. He paints a different picture, a much more spiritual piece to this. He writes in Ephesians 6, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. There is a battle, and it's not like a flesh and blood war type of thing. There's a deep down something happening on the inside in our minds, in the spiritual realm. That may seem weird just like to some of us, but just understand, James is screaming at these people, and he's saying to them, you are losing the battle. You're losing this. You're falling into complacency. You're becoming closer and closer to this world and farther and farther away from God, you adulterous people. God is supposed to be the focus of your life. God is supposed to be the center of your life. It's supposed to flow from him and through him. But the battle is waging and your desires are pulling. You covet and you quarrel. The battle is raging all around you, but you don't even see it. You are oblivious to it and you just go through your everyday life making more money, working and doing this, filling our lives with all of these things and doing this rerun life over and over again. Oblivious to God for much of it. I can feel and hear the desperation in his voice. He's worked up about this. There's a battle and you're in it. And the more you have, the more self-sufficient you become, the more the world pulls at your desires and the more difficult this battle actually is. And for me, I read this stuff and with the spot I'm in in my life, I'm just left with God, what do I do? The answer is not for us all to move over to China where we're persecuted. That's not, that's not what this is. The answer for us is much deeper than that. It's for us to figure out how to prioritize God in the midst of a world that is pulling us harder and harder because we have more and more. 
I feel the tension and I don't know how to respond and I fully understand that I cannot win this battle every day on my own. And right there, I begin to see things clearer. In fact, James now tells us how to respond. And this is consistent with what we have everywhere else in the scripture. No matter the culture, no matter the situation, no matter the the freedom or lack thereof, wealth or poverty, safety or danger, our response to this should all be the same and we must learn to respond with God-focused humility. God-focused humility. Verse 6, he says, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. He gives us more grace. He just yelled at them and called them adulterous people. Did you remember? All caps, adulterous stinking whatevers. And now he says, but God gives us more grace. He gives us, because the reality is, and this is where we start to get it wrong as Americans, the reality is not a single one of us measures up. Not a single one of us, our attitudes and our actions and our thoughts and our motives are in line with where they should be. It is only by and through the grace of God. And James, who just called them all adulterers, now reminds them of the powerful grace of God. But the grace of God doesn't mean that we are just off the hook. The grace of God in our lives seems to be intertwined with the word humility. He gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, lucky for us, pride is not something any of us really struggle with. And for some of us, you're laughing, but you're like, yeah, yeah, no, nah, I, 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 know, I know proud people. I know proud people. And this will, be, this will be the beginning of James' humility rant. You're losing this battle with the world, you adulterous people. Your desires are pulling you, but God gives us more grace. He opposes the proud and he shows favor to the humble. Verse 7, this is filled with significant words. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Come near to God. Wash your hands, you sinners, which is just this way of saying, like, admit that you are wrong. Admit that you are losing at times in your attitudes, in your actions, in your mindset, in the way that you live. Admit that you are falling short. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Like double-minded is like we're going, trying to go in both directions at the same time. Grieve, mourn, and wail. These are humble things. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble imagery here. He's not actually saying walk around without a smile on your face and turning your joy to gloom. It's a humility aspect here of on my face before God saying, I am such a wretch. And it is only because of your grace that I am 
anything. In America, we walk around and say, I can work hard and make my life, and I've worked, and I can do this, and I'm going to do everything I can to elevate myself up. And James is saying, the answer is actually getting on your face and saying, I am a sinner, and I am nothing, and I am in need. And it's humility is what this is. And he just says it clearly in verse number 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Understand, God is waiting. God is calling. God is also pulling. And he wants to help us. He wants to help us in our need. He wants to be where we find our satisfaction and where we find our identity and all of that. But we must move in his direction as he pulls us. We must humble ourselves. We must admit our, our failure, admit our guilt, and we must respond with God-focused, God-centered humility. And there's promise after promise that comes with that. God will lift you up. God will draw near to you. God will move in your direction. God responds to humility in that way. Music team, will you please come? Please stand with me all over this place. Some of you are like, I'm not coming back to this church. That guy just yells all the time at us. <laughs> I fully admit this is different for me. And I want you to feel the love of God in your life. I want you to be encouraged by a God that cares so much for you and all of that. But it but at some point, we need to not just focus on those pieces of Scripture, and we need to take head-on the things that are, like, hard. When Jesus says, take up your cross and die daily, and we just push over that, like, whatever. And he's saying, lay down your life for me every single day. The cross is like an execution thing. Go pick up your electric chair every day and carry it with you. There's, a, there's this idea of dying to myself. And then Jesus says this crazy, crazy verse that makes no sense. And we just skip over this stuff. He says, it's when you lose your life that you actually find it. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? I'm pretty sure that it's when I finally get that dream job I have that I've wanted and I finally buy that house and I get to drive that car around and everyone will look at me and say, wow, what a success he is. I'm pretty sure that's when I'll find my life. So I'm gonna keep working really hard at that. And it's this American idea of the world is pulling. The Bible, I'm going to say this again. I said this last week. The Bible never once says that wealth is wrong. The Bible never sells, says that wealth is a sin. The Bible never says that if you're not persecuted, you know, that, that safety is wrong. The Bible doesn't say that stuff. Freedom is beautiful. Wealth, I love wealth. But there becomes a point. There comes a point something can happen and we don't see it we're blind to it 
where our hearts begin to turn in a different way. And for me, God, God is just calling me to a different level of figuring out how to humble myself, I guess. I don't know. God, we, we come to you with questions that sometimes don't even have answers in Scripture that is confusing. And our temptation is often just to gloss over that stuff and to say that's about somebody else. I pray, God, that that would not be the way that I respond. And I pray that as a church family, we would be a church that is known as people who are willing to wrestle with difficult things in the scripture. And that we would be a church family filled with people who are not like the rest of the world where our focus and our mindset is different. And we would be people that understand every day that the world is pulling and that this is never something that goes away and it's not something that we ever truly figure out, but that we would be so moved by our need for God that we would learn to humble ourselves every single day and watch as you lift us up, not for our own glory and not for our own gain, but that you would lift us up and that you would be glorified in everything that we do and everything that we say and everything that we are. That is the goal. That is what I'm after. And I fail every day, God. My actions and my motives and my attitudes and my thoughts are toxic again and again. And I ask God that you would continue to show me this stuff and help us, change us, teach us, move us as we humble ourselves before you. We love you, God. We need you, God. And we respond to you and your word. We say thank you. Don't let this just be words on a page and we walk out but let this be something deep inside of us that begins to well up we need you we thank you God for your grace we are sinners we fall short but your grace is greater we worship you and we thank you for that in your name